everyone, and <clears throat> excuse me, uh, welcome back to another episode of Search, Ponder, and Pray, um, podcast where we strive to uh, apply the gospel, apply the scriptures to our daily lives as we follow through with the uh, uh, the Come Follow Me schedule provided by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, so, <clears throat> I had kind of a little bit of an issue this morning, so I am recording away from my normal um, studio. So that's probably why there's a bit of a difference in audio quality, which I apologize for. But um, we're going to try and get through this pretty quickly today. I'm a little bit on a time crunch. Um, so we'll, we'll just jump right in. So we'll start with a word of prayer like we normally do. Our dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this day and we are thankful for the opportunity we have to study thy word and to learn more about thee. Father, we are grateful for the health and safety that thou hast granted unto us, and that we have the opportunity to read in thy word and to come to thee. Bless us that we might have the courage to share it with others. Bless us that we might be able to understand how we can apply it into our lives and how we might uh, better serve those around us. We pray for these things ever as a humbly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. <clears throat> Sorry. Something in my throat came out. Um, so today we are in Luke. That's where we're going to be at today, uh, studying Luke chapter one. So um, we're just going to jump straight into it uh, as normal. So like normal, I am going to be reading from uh, Bible itself, as well as from the Institute Student Manual for uh, the New Testament. Um, you can find both of those on the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or churchofjesuschrist.org, excuse me, and then you can navigate through um, from the libraries into the different areas that will have those, or you can probably just search them in like Google or whatever and find them that way as well. All right, so chapter one, verse one. For as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order most excellent, Theophilus, <clears throat> that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Okay, so right there, Luke is breaking down uh, <clears throat> from the get-go why he's writing. Okay, well, what is the purpose of this this book? Why is he even writing this this um, this biography in a way? Because um, if you if you do look at the old, uh, the New Testament student manual, you will find that, um, or if you if you just think about the story of um, Christ's ministry, uh, Luke was not one of the apostles; he wasn't uh, present, and so. Like he says in, in verse two, um, he's hearing these things from eyewitnesses. So he's he's going out and collecting this. Let's look over here at the um, at what the the manual says it's for verses one through four. It says the Gospel of Luke begins with a prologue, which is a formal introduction. The use of this literary style it was customary in classical Greek literature and served to establish the purpose and importance of the work as well as the credential of the author. Luke's purpose was to help Theophilus know the certainty of those things. He had previously learned about Jesus Christ, Luke. 
Luke, Luke's assertion that he had perfect understanding of all things from the very first does not mean that he was an eyewitness and savior, but it reflects his diligence in incorporating the testimonies of eyewitnesses into his work. Um, so basically, he's you know Luke is is laying out and saying you can trust this account. I have done an enormous amount of work to ensure the testimonies and the eyewitnesses that have seen these things they they actually have indeed um, I, I verified the truth of these things. And so he's kind of like like it said he's setting himself up to show that he has credibility that um, Theophilus can rely on. Um, so. That, that kind of setting the stage there. He, um, it's kind of a common understanding for people who kind of start to delve into the background of the different authors of the Gospels that Luke was a doctor. So he is, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, more, um, probably more analytical in a lot of his approaches, um, a lot more mm, minute detail oriented. Um, which we'll probably see as we get as we move along, but um, just kind of a little background there. I don't normally talk about the backgrounds, but I felt like it's kind of important because Luke himself brings it up. So <laughs> let's jump back in. Verse five: There was in the days of Herod the king of Judea a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abia, and his wife was the daughter was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Um, and they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. And they had no child because that Elizabeth was barren, and they both were now well stricken in years. And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. Okay, so two new characters are being introduced. We've got Zach Zacharias and Elizabeth. And we're told from the, from the beginning that Zechariah is a priest of the course of Abia. Okay, and in the New Testament student manual, we find a section about what is the course of Abia. Centuries before the birth of Jesus, King David was divided, uh, had divided the priests of Israel into 24 families that he called courses. Each was called to serve in the temple twice a year for one week each time. Zechariah belonged to the priestly family of Abia. Joseph Smith's translation of Luke 1 8 replaces the word course with priesthood. The priests drew lots to determine who among them would receive the high honor of offering incense within the temple. Because of the large number of priests, the opportunity to burn incense was a rare privilege, one that would have been a high point in Zacharias's life of service as a priest. So to have this all line up in the way that it does, it was um, it was definitely the work of God that, you know. That it was his time for his family or his lineage or whatever to be uh, there at the temple, and then on top of that, to have out of <clears throat> excuse me out of his entire extended family, to have him, him be the one um, who was chosen to go in and burn incense, the only one who would go in. That was a very very important thing. Um, it was very precious to him, and so then we we continue onward. And the, and the whole multitude of the people were praying without the time of incense. And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zechariah, for thy prayer is heard. And thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. <clears throat> I want to take a moment right here and um, just kind of... Uh, Look at this this story just for a minute. 
Um, so it's it's interesting because you know Zacharias he's prepared his whole life for this moment to come into the temple and to be able to burn incense in the holy place, not the holy of holies, but the holy place. Um, he's prepared himself for this, and he's gone through whatever he needed to, and he's also been praying for a very long time to have a child, and it just hasn't happened. And now comes the day that he goes in the holy place, and an angel appears to him. And he was troubled, and fear fell upon him, you know, which is is to be expected, you know, all of a sudden a heavenly, heavenly visitor just, you know, appears next to you in some form. It, it, it might cause uh, some interesting feelings. But I think one thing that I want to discuss is that a lot of times we spend so much time praying for our prayers to be heard. We spend so much time praying for certain things that when they are finally answered in some form, we almost can't see that they've been answered. And we might reject the way that they've been answered. And it might cause us problems. But the angel tells him, he says, fear not, for thy prayer is heard. You know, this is this is what's coming. And <clears throat> you're not just going to have a son. But you're going to, you, I need you to name him a certain name because that's important. And carrying on in verse 14, And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall return to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So that's quite the announcement. Um, let's jump over to the Old Testament, the New Testament manual and just kind of see what it says here about this. As part of the events recorded in Luke 1 through 3, numerous witness, witnesses declare the divinity of Jesus Christ, including angels from heaven. While serving as a member of the 70, Elder Merrill J. Bateman explained, why it was fitting for angels to be such an important part of the events surrounding the Savior's birth and ministry. He says, One might ask, why were angels so prominent at the Savior's birth, and why were they such an important part of his life and ministry? The answers are twofold. The first pertains, the first pertains to the nature and mission of the personage whom they were heralding, a divine being, the Son of God, the only begotten in flesh, who came to earth to save all of God's children. The second concern concerns the ushering in of a new dispensation, a period of time when the gospel would be restored in its fullness. The ministry of angels is to assist in the ushering of, of dispensations. The last prophet of the Old Testament was Malachi, who lived 400 years before the birth of Christ. And at that time, Israel, in large part, had turned away from the covenants made with Jehovah. Consequently, they, there was an apostasy. Although the Aaronic priesthood was on the earth when Jesus was born, the Melchizedek priesthood had been taken from the earth. Therefore, there was a need for the priesthood and the gospel to be restored in their fullness. At the point, at the beginning of the new dispensation, following a period of apostasy, there is no one with priesthood authority to administer the covenants in their fullness. Consequently, a Lord sends messengers from the other side of the veil to return priesthood keys and the gospel plan to the earth. It is not surprising, then, that an angel visited Zacharias and instructed him with regard to the mission of his son. 
Um, yeah, I'm going to let that stand the way it is. And then we're going to jump, jump on. There's a section on my prayers heard. In ancient Israel, ch childlessness among married couples was regarded as a serious misfortune. Some even believed it to be a punishment for sin. It is evident from Luke 1.13 that Zacharias and Elizabeth had prayed for the opportunity to become parents. Zacharias had no posterity through whom his priesthood line could continue. And Elizabeth later remarked that her barrenness had been viewed with reproach among men. That's in verse 25. In spite of this trial, however, Zacharias and Elizabeth had remained righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. This is the first of many instances recorded in the Gospel of Luke that demonstrates the Lord's awareness of mercy toward those who are affected, afflicted or downtrodden. Um, yeah, so let's kind of, let's just kind of keep working our way forward on this. Um, let's see. So we are in verse 18 now. And Zacharias said unto the angel, Whereby shall I know this? For I am an old man, my wife is well stricken in years. And the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel, that stand in the presence of God. And I'm sent to speak unto thee and to show thee these glad tidings. So he kind of, you know, he's asking, prove it. You know, how am I, how am I supposed to know that you're telling the truth? How am I supposed to know you're, you know? And he says, listen, this is who I am. This is, you know, why I'm not here. And then he comes in with, and now listen. And behold, now in verse 20, and behold, thou shalt be dumb and not able to speak until the day of these things shall be performed, because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. So this is another um, a moment where someone asks for a sign, and the Lord grants it, and sometimes we don't really want the sign answered in the way that um, he might be willing to give to us. So he provides a sign, and he tells him, you're going to be dumb, you will not be able to speak or hear, which it usually uh the affliction of, of being dumb in scriptures, I, I, I believe, uh, from what I understand, is um, you can neither speak nor hear, which there's kind of evidence of this later on, which we'll get to. Um, and so, and then in verse 21, the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he tarried so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak unto them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, where he beckoned to them and remained speechless. And it came to pass that as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished, he departed to his own house. So, you know, the people are all outside. It's taking way longer than it normally should. I don't know why he's in there so long. Finally, he comes out, beckons, you know, he's waving his arms, get, trying to get them all to come over. They all come over. And he's like, well, what, what's going on? What's going on? And then he doesn't say anything. He can't say anything. And so they, they figure, well, he must have had some sort of visitation or vision or something that affected him in this way. Um, but what I find interesting is, you know, uh, true to his cause, knowing that this is his, this is his time to, to do his, his labor in the temple. He doesn't, he doesn't write to anybody and say, well, you know, I can I, I've been stricken dumb. So can I go home? <laughs> no, he, he finishes his, his time. He, he finishes his work there at the temple. He has, a, he has a work to do and he's going to finish it. And then in verse 24, and after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and hid herself for five months, saying, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked upon me to take away my reproach among men. 
And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee, named Nazareth, to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph, the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So now we're going to get into, so we're kind of switching scenes, we're jumping to a different place, um, and now Gabriel is being sent somewhere else. It's been six months, and now, so there's a, there's a six-month time frame where, you know, Elizabeth conceives, is hidden for five months, and in the sixth month after that, then Gabriel visits Mary. And in verse 28, And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, and the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast her mind what manner of salutation this should be. <clears throat> I find this somewhat interesting um, that he, you know, he comes in and says this to her. And I don't know if at this time she recognized that he was a heavenly uh, messenger or if she recognized it but was just trying to figure out why he was saying these things. So verse 30, And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou art conceived in thy womb, and bring and shall bring forth, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. So names are obviously important in some manner to the Lord. There are the, the scriptures are replete with instances where he changes someone's name, and now we've just had two individuals who an angel has appeared and said, No, this will be their name. I want them to be named this. And the Lord will often have people name their children certain things in the scriptures as a sign to um, to, the, to those around them. Um, I believe the name John. Um, I don't. I don't remember. I, 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 won't, I won't get into that. But their names were very important. It, it was important enough that an angel came and told their parents, "This is what you will name." This is what the Lord wants you, this is what God wants you to name your children. Verse 32, And he shall be great, and he shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the Highest shall overshadow thee, Therefore also the holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. <clears throat> so he lays it out for Mary at this time. He says, listen, you're going to remain a virgin. You're going to conceive, and it will be by the power of God. And so therefore, the son that you will bear will be called the Son of God. And obviously this was a very important moment for her. And he continues and says, And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. But with God, nothing shall be impossible. So again, Gabriel is giving um, some credibility to his story. And I would also imagine that as Mary's starting to think about this, she's starting to realize the social and the um, personal and the... Um, the health, the, you know, the personal implications that being pregnant is going to have on her, going to have on Joseph, going to have on her family, going to have on Joseph's family. 
And so she's probably starting to worry at this point. And Gabriel then tells her, your cousin, Elizabeth, and cousin, I believe, um, yeah, so if you if you click on the footnote for cousin, it's, uh, it's generally known that it's, it's a relative, not necessarily a cousin. Elizabeth was, um, a, a, uh, was related in some way to Mary, and so they knew each other, but they may not have been you know, cousins. So this allows Mary to have a way to kind of escape, to, to, to find a place where she can go and hide away for a little bit and kind of comes to terms with what it is that she's going to have to do. Um, because being, you know, after watching my wife go through it, you know, pregnancy is not easy, uh, even in our current day. And I don't imagine that it was easy at all for them. And then on top of it, like we talked about last time, the social implications of um, being with child before you're married was um, very severe. And so having that ability to step away from it all and get away from it and be able to um, take the time that's needed before um, the big day was important, I think. And so at this point, after hearing, fool with God, nothing shall be impossible, you know, Gabriel lays it out, you know, don't worry. Obvious, you know, he kind of gets kind of a callback to what he said earlier, fear not, um, for God is with thee. So then in continuing in verse 38, Mary says, okay, then behold, sorry, verse 38, and Mary said, behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. And Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste into the city of Judea, into the city of Judah, sorry, and entered into the house of Zacharias and saluted Elizabeth. And it came to pass that when, that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. So Elizabeth has this testimony given to her of the truth of what Mary is going to tell, what Mary is going to say to her. And Elizabeth says in verse 42, And she spake out with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And whence is this to me, that the mother of, thy, of my Lord should come to me? For lo, as soon as the voice of the salutation sounded in my ears, the babe leapt in my womb for joy. And blessed is she that believed, for there, for there shall be a performance of those things which were told her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord. And my spirit hath rejoiced in my God, my Savior. For he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He hath showed, he hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty for their seats, and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich hath, he hath sent empty away. He hath hope in his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, he, as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. I do want to take a moment with this um, section of, of verse. I know a few uh, people who feel a few women in my life who feel that God might not care as much about them as 
that he does about maybe the men in their lives or the men around them or men they know. Um, and this is obviously a very strong indicator that that is not true. At this moment, both Elizabeth and Mary are um, pronouncing prophecy. Now, that should be taken as something very important. Mary is laying out what the Savior is going to do, how his, how his role, what his role is going to be in the world to come, in, in, in the future. And Elizabeth is pronouncing the truthfulness of it as a second witness. This is something that they have a very powerful moment here. And I find it interesting. I'm not trying to um, say that. I, I find it. I find it interesting that it comes in relation with the call of motherhood. Now. I don't want anyone getting upset and thinking, oh, well, you're just saying women should only be mothers. What? Okay. That's obviously not the case. But we know from the, from the proclamation to the world of family that the role of a woman is to be the caretaker in the home. That is where she will find the most power in her calling. It... <laughs> I cannot speak to it very much because obviously I'm not a mother, I'm not a woman, I, I don't know that. But there is obviously some resounding spiritual strength that comes from being a mother for women. Just as there is for men who, are, who go out to be providers and protectors for their family. It's not something that should be overlooked. In today's society, it seems that there's a lot of naysaying and um, degradation of stay-at-home mothers or homemakers or things like that. But obviously, to the Lord, that is a high position and something that should not be discounted. Now, let's move on. Let's see. Um, in verse 56, Now, and Mary abode with her about three months and returned to her own house. So it does seem that she was, she stayed there until things kind of calmed down, maybe even until Joseph kind of came to the point where he felt like he received his own vision from Gabriel and felt like, okay, I can take her in and we'll still get married and we'll proceed with it and we'll work, we'll go through this together. It may have been three months. It may have been two months. It may have been one month. It may have been the next day. Who knows? But Mary stayed with her for three months for some reason and then went back. And now Elizabeth's full time, in verse 56, came that she should be delivered. And she brought forth a son. And her neighbors and her cousins, which we know are just relatives, heard how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her, and they rejoiced with her. I mean, the, the birth of any child should be a moment of celebration. Bringing a life into the world is not a small thing. And any mother out there who has done it should be very um, very in awe of what they have done with the Lord. I know that there are those who, um, for medical reasons or whatever, may not be able to do that. And I, I would urge you to rely on the promise that the Lord has given us that in the millennium and in the worlds to come, all things will be made right. And to rely on the Lord. 
in that, in the same way that Elizabeth and Zacharias, Zacharias relied on that and proceeded forward in faith. Now, in verse 58, 59, excuse me, and it came to pass that the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they called him Zacharias after the name of his father. And his mother answered and said, Not so, he shall be called John. And they said unto her, There is none of thy kindred that is called by this name. And they made signs to his father how he, how he would have him called. This is one of the reasons why I believe that being dumb is, is deaf and um, unable to speak, uh, deaf and mute, I guess, uh, because they weren't able to just turn to him and say, well, what do you want? You know, they, they had to make signs or write to him in some way and say, what is it? You know, how should he be called? <clears throat> and I find it interesting that it's not until the next verse. So we'll just, we'll just jump in. Verse 63. And he asked for a writing table and wrote, saying, his name is John. And they all marveled. And his mouth was opened immediately, and his tongue loosed, and he spake and praised God. So it's almost a test moment here. That, you know, he, I'm sure at this moment he had the thought of the, the meeting he had with Gabriel, that he's not able to speak or hear what's going on because, because he didn't believe. And now here's his moment to prove that he does. Why are they going to name him? Because it is it is typical for the name to be passed down. And there's no John in the family. So why are they going to name him John? But Zacharias says, no, his name is John. Not it should be, not let's call him, his name is John. And his tongue was loosed. And in verse 65, and the fear, and fear came on all that dwelt round about them. And all these sayings were noised abroad throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all they that heard them lay up in their hearts, saying, What manner of child shall this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost, and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he spake by the mouth, of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that he that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us, that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. Through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the, the day spring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. I think that this is a beautiful, beautiful moment. This is a moment when Zachariah, Zacharias will be tested. What are you going to name him? He proves his faithfulness. And as a blessing to him, he is allowed to bless his son. How much that must have weighed on him beforehand to think, I have a son. I'm I finally have my son. And I'm a priest. I should be able to bless my own son 
at his circumcision. At, give him a blessing. Give him a name. Do these things. That's my calling. That's what I'm supposed to do. I'm not able to do it to my own son because of my faithlessness. I'm sure there were many tear-filled nights and prayers where he prayed for forgiveness to the Lord. And in this moment, the Lord blessed him that he was able to utter this powerful blessing, this prophecy of what and who John would become. And in verse 80, And the child grew and waxed strong in the spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel. I think the lesson that we can glean from this is that the Lord very often will bring wondrous blessings from trials, from tribulations, from hardships. He will bless us and he will guide us into the, into the paths of light, into the green pastures. But sometimes we have to walk through the fires first. And sometimes those paths might be more scary than we're willing to willing to admit that we were hoping for. But with God, nothing shall be impossible. The blessings are great for those that wait upon the Lord. I urge us all, as we go through hard times in our lives, whether they be financial, whether they be spiritual, whether they be personal, whether they be social, whatever they may be, trust in the Lord. Hold tight and press on. Sometimes we have to flee. Sometimes we have to go seek our family. And sometimes we are blocked out from the entire rest of the world, like Zacharias was, unable to hear, unable to speak, left to himself. For the course of nine months, almost probably close to a year. But he held firm. And because of that, he was greatly blessed. I testify that the Lord does live, that he waits to bless us all. I testify that if we will seek him, we will find him in time. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.